0: Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. It is January 25th, but most importantly, it is 2022, and that means it is a midterm year. I talk a lot about how candidates are the bright spots that I look to when things get real dark, but every now and then, One of them announces that I am so excited about it. I I don't actually need to like look for the bright spot. It's just, it's just right there. And that is why I'm very excited today to be joined by the newest addition to the race for the open seat in Maryland's fourth district. Former Congresswoman Donna Edwards is running for her old seat again. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. How is the campaign going? Thanks, Jess. It's great to be back on the campaign trail again.
1: Uh, it's really exciting. I mean, both um, you know, a message for my congressional district and for the country. Uh, and I feel really good about the decision to run to regain uh, the seat that I held for five terms. You know, nobody's entitled uh, to a seat. So it really is a campaign. It really is about running and connecting with voters.
0: I, but this is, I mean, I feel like I've been watching your career for a very long time at this point. I was so saddened when you didn't get the Senate seat that I very much, me and all of my EMILY's list cohorts very much wanted you to win. It's been wonderful to hear your voice talking about our current political reality every time you you pop up. That's what I want to hear. You center the people that need to be centered. You're always bringing it back to the substance of the issues. But I've missed your voice in government. I've, I've missed it in, in the, the the rooms where you can actually make the difference. So I, I guess my question is what have these last few years been like for you and, and, and when did you decide I'm gonna get back into the fray? <laughs> well, I mean, the last
1: uh, few years since that uh, since that Senate run, I've had a real chance to take a, a hard look at the country at an arm's length distance and at government and at public service and at the workings of Congress and how that connects with people's everyday lives. And uh, I didn't make this decision lightly. The um, gentleman, Anthony Brown, uh, Congressman Brown, who succeeded me in the fourth congressional district seat after I ran for the Senate, I was no longer able to run for my old seat. Um, he decided to step down and run for attorney general. And so the seat is open. And I think that, um, that ma- it makes the most sense to bring my seniority back uh, into the Congress, to bring in an experienced voice uh, back in Congress, whether we're fighting in the majority or the minority. I've served in both. I served in leadership. I was a rank and file member. I understand what it means to hit the ground running. Um, and to take on the challenges for some of the most extreme elements in our country who have found their way into the Congress, into the House of Representatives.
0: Is there, I, it feels like you, you have the sort of policy positions and agenda that aligns with the more progressive, younger, newer members of Congress, but you are right that you would come in with this institutional knowledge that you know would you even be a freshman congresswoman at that point like would that do you have to start over
1: <laughs> no I, I mean i i regained my seniority i mean i served That's i came special amazing. election so i served um five terms in the, in the congress nine and a half years um and also just knowing you know how to how to get things done i mean i remember when i came in congress as a freshman i thought i had to slay every dragon And it turns out that that is not how you govern, it's not how you legislate, that it's about negotiation. And um, sometimes, you know, not getting everything you want, but just continuing to push for uh, for the most. And I understand those dynamics. And I think I would bring that kind of steady experience, but sharing progressive values into the Democratic Caucus.
0: I'm always floored when somebody knows the realities of campaigning has stopped and then decides to get back into it. <laughs> can, can you talk about the conversations that you've had with friends and family as, this is such a critical moment in our history, but it's also, I mean, democratic lawmakers are receiving death threats every day. We are teetering on the brink of a democratic collapse. Like, and I mean, small D democratic, not even big D democratic. Like this is not an easy fight to wade into um what kind of like mental calculations did you have to do to say yes I'm willing to do this with my life knowing knowing how hard like you know how hard it is you're not you know a starry-eyed newcomer to the process you know exactly how awful it's going to be and you're willing to do it so so just talk me through that process what what got you back in well, there
1: are several things. I mean, one, the state of the nation. I mean, I am really con- concerned for the republic, for our democracy. I believe in little d democracy. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, I think that we're at a really critical moment. And I don't think this is a time to walk away from our government. I think it's the time to walk toward it. And I had a lot of conversations with families and friends. And I will be honest with you. They are all over the map about whether I should do this or not, <laughs> uh, but they know that it's my passion, and they know that I have both a passion to serve and to serve my congressional district to make sure that we can deliver on you know promises that were made. I mean, I have a district that has you know wide income gaps, and where the pandemic has exposed tremendous inequities, um, and I know that my district is not different from the rest of the country, uh, and so. Um, you know, it was not an easy decision to wade back in, but the moment I made the decision, you know how you can make a decision and it just feels right? This mm-hmm. just feels like the right thing to do at the right moment. And I've ta- had a lot of conversations with my former colleagues about this, who to a one yeah. have been enthusiastic about my coming back into the Congress.
0: Even though you'll have to work with, or, or at least near, uh, like Jim Jordan and Mo Brooks and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn, like that's that's where I have the like. Really, you want to do that? <laughs> Thank you for wanting to do that. But how will you approach working? I mean, Republicans were pretty awful the last time you were in Congress. I'm not going to pretend that they were good. They weren't. Um, but this is a new breed. How how are you going to approach? working in a chamber that has been so traumatized by January 6th and continues to have people who were supportive of the insurrection serving in it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is the, this is the big challenge, but again, I don't think that this is a fight for our Republic that you walk away from. Um, yeah. I think you walk toward it. And look, I served with, uh, with Jim Jordan. In fact, he's in my class. Um, <laughs> and so I do know him and I, I know his antics. And I've been observing Congress and the House of Representatives over the last um, few years since I've been out. And I know that it's a toxic environment. And I talk to my former colleagues and they tell me about the toxicity. There are members of Congress who've announced their retirements because of the trauma of January 6th. And so I feel like I owe it to them and to the the country um, to stand in their stead. Uh, to go back there and fight the and fight the good fat fight, and I am not. I believe that Democrats can win the majority, can retain the majority in 2022. I am not a naysayer. I look at these districts that are nominating some of the wackiest of the wacky, and I think that independent voters and Democrats are going to join together and reject um, those those folks and retain the leadership that I think is really important in the majority.
0: I, I want to ask you about your road trip, because you, you put out a campaign video to announce your, your run that highlighted this three-month, 12,000-mile road trip that you took in 2017 um, to learn more about the country under Donald Trump. So, so talk a little bit about that experience and how it informed your decision to get back in.
1: Wow. Well, you know, after I, I uh, came out of Congress in January of 2017, and I was exhausted. We had been through a, a horrific election. I was really supportive mm-hmm. and had been on the campaign trail with, uh, with Hillary Clinton, um, tried to get her elected to president, and um, I was exhausted. And so uh, I had long wanted to drive across the country. I've done those road trips before tent camping with my son, but mm-hmm. I wanted an RV. And so I got in an RV. I borrowed one from a friend, actually. And I thought I'd be out there for two weeks. And then two weeks turned into a month. And then it was three months. Actually, it was a little bit over over three months on the road. And I would stop in campgrounds. And campgrounds are really interesting places. I mean, people come. They come from all over. And um, have they conversations are. with
0: them. My grandparents owned a campground briefly. And I remember that. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're great
1: places and you have conversations and I would sit around the evening at a campfire, you know, talk to a couple of guys about, you know, what was going on. They were intrigued by me. I mean, I will tell you, I think I was the only black woman I met um, in the uh, traveling alone yep. in the higher time. Um, and they revealed some things to me. I mean, one about their, you know, anxieties and frustrations and you know, worried about their children and grandchildren and all of those things. But up underneath it, I kept getting over and over again, this sense that it was really about race and about, um, you know, entitlement and the idea that someone had taken something away um, from them as a the basis of their support. And almost to a one, hmm. people were Donald Trump supporters. And so I really wanted to explore that. And it turns out that we had common interests in things like health care and prescription drug costs and the cost of child care and all of those things, but they couldn't get over the hurdle of sharing those commonalities and common concerns with black and brown people. And so it was very revealing to me. I came back. I wrote about it a bit. I had a column with The Washington Post up until about a week ago when I announced. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked about it um, on on television, on MSNBC and NBC. And those experiences really helped me to better understand the complexities of the country and to come back with a perspective of trying to figure out how, as a Democrat, we can have a message that appeals in every quarter of of the nation. And I still believe that that percentage of people who share the most hardline views is not the majority of the country, but it sounds like it because they haven't a huge megaphone, and they have had a huge supporter in Donald Trump who played on those grievances, exploited those grievances, and still did not make their lives better.
0: Yeah, I I think so. So having these conversations, what are your thoughts on how Democrats should be thinking about the midterms in terms of the electorate? I, I worry that we spend too much time trying to persuade swing voters and not enough time trying to expand the electorate and make sure that, the, the, you know, we know that there are more of us than there are of them. We know that we don't all vote because some of us face barriers and obstacles to voting that the party hasn't prioritized removing. How, how having, having been in this space and spending more time with the other side than I think most Democrats probably have, how do you approach the electorate in 2022?
1: Well, I don't think we abandon our values in order to appeal to, you know, some people that we're never going to get. And I agree with you. I think there are a lot of voters out there who've been disengaged, who share our values. And our job is to re-engage them. Our job is to speak to their their needs and concerns. It's why I've been concerned, for example, about um, the state of the fight around voting rights. Because... I think that um, achieving voting voting rights and making sure that we can protect people at the polls and that they have the ability to have their uh, votes uh, fairly cast and counted um, really speaks to a part of the electorate that is part of the Democratic base. And we can't afford for them to stay home. Um, and so we have to show every single day that we're fighting uh, fighting for them, things like childcare. I mean, if you're a minimum wage worker and you're paying for childcare, I mean, that's your whole income practically, uh, just paying for childcare so they can go to a job that doesn't really pay you well. And so we have to fight for fair wages, for wages that allow people to take care of themselves and their children. And when we're fighting uh, for those for those voters, they will be home. They will come home uh, to us, they will show up to vote. But, you know, I mean, I think I'm like other other voters. I mean, if you're not speaking to me, why should I vote for you? So uh, Democrats, I think, have a lot of work to do to shore up our base in the kind of way that, um, that uh, Republicans animate and shore up their base. I mean, you know, we can't leave any voter behind and you cannot get to 50 plus one if you don't have the base of your party.
0: Right, right. It's really, it, it. like, the math is not actually all that complicated. One of the things that, that, demo, that the Democratic institutions, I think, have done poorly historically in recognizing the importance of that base is in supporting candidates who are from those communities. You you were the first Black woman elected to represent Maryland in Congress in 2008. We're not talking about ancient history here. We're talking about the election of Barack Obama. <laughs> like, you, you were the first Black woman to, to represent Maryland. And... There is currently no woman in the eight-member Maryland delegation. Well, the last time that you and I talked at length, we were pretty frustrated about the party institutions' inability to see that supporting candidates from the communities that we were trying to reach was going to be beneficial, not just for winning elections, but also for governing. Do you think that that has changed in any way? I feel like the the, the classes are getting more diverse. I feel like I'm seeing more women running. Is that happening in spite of the democratic institutions recognition that they are good candidates and worthy of holding office? Or has that started to crack a little bit and are they starting to get it? Well, in
1: 2016, after I lost the Senate race, I caught a lot of flack for statements that I made after the election um, saying that the democratic party had to do better. I mean, we had you to, 100% to. You do were one hundred percent
0: correct. To do better, correct that day. You are correct today. The flack was because people don't like looking at their own shortcomings. All right, I'm sorry. Continue. No,
1: that's all right because I think that what happened after 2016 was 2018, and I think yeah. the message went out across the country, and not just my uh, race, but Hillary Clinton's uh, race as well. That um, the message kind of went out across the country. Women were fired up with the election. Obviously of, of Donald Trump. And more women, more women of color ran in 2018 at every single level, state, local, federal, um, than we've than we've seen uh, ever. And I think that that is because you know women recognize that we are not going to be in line if we wait to be asked that the institutions, because they are so dominated by men, men choose they choose people they know and people they like and people they've been around. Yeah. And so we're not gonna be at the top of the list. Even when I ran for Congress uh, the first time, it wasn't because I was chosen. It's because I had to look in the mirror and choose myself because if I had waited in line, they wanted me to run for dog catcher first. Um, right. So, you know, I do, I do think some things have changed if you look at uh, at least the democratic side of the aisle in Congress now, it is refreshing to see so many women, so many women of color such diversity of experience uh, in the Congress, but it's still not fifty percent. It's still oh, no. not representative of the of the population, and so we have to do better. In Maryland, when I first started voting at eighteen, our delegation was evenly split in the House—four men and four women—and today, in that same House delegation, there are no women. Uh, and so, I do think that my voice is unique, and that it would add something. Uh, to the table and it's like Shirley Chisholm said if you if you don't have a seat at the table bring a folding chair and I'm bringing my folding chair to this race
0: talk a little bit about your background because this is going to be like there are a number of other Democrats in the primary aside from your seniority what what is it about you that you are using to connect with voters uh, as you as you make your way on the campaign trail?
1: Well, I think um, many of the voters in this district, which I've represented pretty much every part of the district at some point, um, <laughs> even through redistricting, that um, right. they know me. They know that um, I raised my son largely on my own, that I put myself through law school, undergraduate school at Wake Forest University, law school at the University of New Hampshire. And, uh, and that I've been a public interest advocate my, in, my entire life, um, organizing first for public citizen and then um, founding the National Network to End Domestic Violence to uh, really be at the center of passing the Violence Against Women Act in 1994. Um, so voters know me and they know my experience in Congress Uh, Delivering for them, I served on the transportation and infrastructure committee and right now, because of the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, that means a lot of resources are going to be coming back to states and localities. And I want to make sure that I can deliver uh, for our congressional district where transportation and infrastructure needs are really huge, and I know the ins and outs of that I served on that committee for the entirety of the time that I was in Congress. Um, uh, long before I, I did those things, I was a, um, an analyst and systems engineer for uh, Lockheed working in the space program. And so I bring a lot of experience on you know, both the left side and the right side of my brain to being, uh, to being in, the, in the Congress. And so I wanna use those tools and use the tools that I learned as part of uh, Speaker Pelosi's leadership team To make sure that we can really deliver both for my district and for the American people.
0: So, when you're talking to folks around your district, what are the issues that come up the most and what are you going to be most fired up to work on when and if you return to Congress?
1: Well, I think people are concerned about um, the pace of their wages keeping up with inflation. I mean, I think that is a a concern that's not just shared in my district, but across the country. And so they want they want wages that enable them to meet their own responsibilities. Uh, they wanna make sure that they, you know, have a future that is, that is healthy, where, you know, childcare and healthcare are readily available in our community. Um, one of the things that the pandemic exposed in the county that I live in is that we have a severe shortage of doctors and nurses can provide care and so this is at the top of the agenda prescription drug costs where you know people are paying tremendous amounts for um drugs that have been on the market for years for example for insulin but um you know still cost an arm and a leg i have multiple sclerosis i was diagnosed when i was uh in the in, in congress and the cost of i've experienced it myself the cost of Healthcare, the cost of uh, prescription drugs is tremendous. And we wanna relieve that burden um, from people in my district and people around the country and and transportation. I mean, we're in the metropolitan Washington area. We spend hours and hours driving to jobs, driving to the grocery store. We wanna make sure that our roads are safe, that our bridges and underpasses aren't falling down on on our cars. Um, And so infrastructure is really important. And of course, education. um, People tell me over and over again, again, the pandemic exposing the inequities in in education and the delivery, for example, of online uh, learning where children have fallen far and far behind uh, and need to catch up. So, um, you know, the interests of my district are similar um, to uh, the concerns of Americans all across the country. And I just wanna make sure that I'm in a position to deliver on the promise that we've made to the American people.
0: And if people are as excited about this candidacy as I am, uh, where can they find you and what can they do to help?
1: Well, thank you for asking that. I mean, you know, there's always, there's giving money, there's um, making phone calls, knocking on doors, and they can find me at Donna Edwards, the number four Congress, Dot com. That's Donna Edwards, the number four, congress.com. And I'm really excited about this, excited to return to an institution that I love and that I value. And I just wanna make sure that we are providing the kind of service that we need uh, and that the American people expect. I, I can't tell you how much energy I've had, especially over the last several days, getting back into the thick of things
0: you're giving me energy and like the thought of somebody coming in with your priorities and your seniority is frankly very exciting because we don't we don't have a lot of those progressive heroes we don't have enough of them right now and uh and you would get to add to their ranks so this is this is going to be a fun one to watch thank you so much for joining me this morning uh please come back absolutely anytime best of luck on the trail
1: thank you so much
0: jess We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.